Hi, podcast listeners. This week, we have another chocolate interview for you. To get the most out of this interview, please listen to the first episode of Return to Soil with Patricia from Choco Vivo. In this episode, we do some mega nerding out about chocolate. Enjoy! Hi, and welcome to Return to Soil. I'm here today with Greg from Dandelion Chocolate in San Francisco, California. Dandelion is probably one of my favorite chocolates because they are bean to bar, don't use any cacao butter, and manage to have exceptional texture in their bars. Welcome, Greg. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for inviting me, Dan. I'm really excited to be able to be here and chat with you. Yeah, I guess uh, the first thing is um, I was looking at your website and your position was chocolate sorcerer. I don't know <laughs> whether that referred to a magician or there's actually a word for person who sources who is a magician. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about your position in the in Dandelion. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So my my uh, my title is indeed chocolate sorcerer. Um, I'm I'm responsible for all the sourcing, um, and uh, and that and I really enjoy funny titles, just <laughs> um, where I got it. Um, but yeah. So my my role um, at Dandelion is uh, I'm the sorcerer, and so what it means is I travel the world to find great cocoa beans. Um, and great sugar, although we only need one source of sugar, and we found that source of sugar. So that one's, um, it's a great source of sugar and love to talk about it. Uh, but it's not quite as exciting because there's not, there's not a lot of new sugar we're, we're working with out there. Um, uh, and I, I, I'm responsible for a number of other things at Denline. This is the way small businesses work too. So um, uh, some various other departments uh, report into me, such as operations, which is w- one person, uh, our, our sales and wholesale, which is one person, um, <laughs> you know, uh, our, um, our communications team of one person. So um, I, I, I work with a, a very variety of people in the company, but the primary thing I do is sourcing. Hmm. So the first off, I would have to say, if you want to learn anything about chocolate, is you need to visit their website. Um, we'll put it after the show. And I read a couple of your posts, and they're pretty epic. <laughs> kind of reminds me of like uh, very geeking out on chocolate and half nerding. I'm not sure if the words are the same, but have you always been super passionate about chocolate? Yeah, I, I absolutely have, and and honestly. Uh, I've, I've always been passionate about chocolate and always been a geek. And so it's been great to be able to geek out on chocolate. Um, I, my early, so I, I honestly can't say when I first began loving chocolate, but I can say that anyone who has known me, uh, sort of, you know, since college onward is not even remotely surprised that I'm doing what I do now. Um, I had a long stint in the tech industry, um, but even in college, uh, I, um, the, I, I, at one point, um, had gotten a book on truffles, um, and how to make truffles and being in college, uh, I had decided to add more alcohol, more, more liqueur to the, to, to the ganache because in college I felt like what makes things better than more alcohol. Um, and, uh, and it turns out ganache doesn't set. When you put too much alcohol in it, you know there's that whole freezing point thing, et cetera. Um, and of course, uh, being an engineer, I decided the the re- the reason was my freezer wasn't cold enough. So um, uh, some roommates and I went to the physics lab, got a thermos of liquid nitrogen, and uh, super cooled truffle centers 
um, <laughs> to make uh, so that the ganache was solid as a rock to make some uh, truffles. So even in college, I was doing crazy chocolate stuff. Nice. What was the first good bar of chocolate you remember that you're like, ah, oh, this is kind of what chocolate should taste like? Oh, it, it, I mean, it had to be Scharfenberger. Like, mm. you know, um, and this was, let's see, I remember doing the Scharfenberger factory tour in like 2002 or 2003, somewhere thereabouts. Um, so not long before, before sort of the acquisition uh, for, for, from Hershey's. Um, but I just remember the first time I had a Scharfenberger bar and thinking, wow, there's, there's like actually a lot of really interesting flavor going on in here. Um, and, then, um, and, and then I have to say from that, you know, in terms of single origin, um, uh, Cluzel's uh, sort of sets of single origin bars, I think, really helped me see the, the variety in flavor from origin to origin. I, I remember trying a Sao Tome bar and a Papua New Guinea bar and really understanding how different those, those tasted. Um, so that's a great segue. Now, you talk about single origin, and maybe some who are beginning to get into beans bar will notice if they go to your website or your store, you have the bars and you have the location on it. Um, maybe you can, we can start all the way back to where you source, and maybe we'll walk from there. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so we source from a number of places. Um, Belize is one of my personal favorites because it's the it's it's um, the it's it's essentially one of the main places that got me into bean to bar. Um, so early on, uh, I I had thought I I would sort of become a chocolatier and you know and and sort of buy couverture and um, make confections, uh, and then I went on a trip with Taza to Belize. Um, and on that trip actually met, um, Emily Stone of Maya Mountain, um, who's well known in the chocolate industry. Um, but on that trip, you know, tasted pulp from a cocoa tree for the first time, uh, you know, tasted the, the sort of classic, um, Mayan drinking, um, uh, drinking cacao or drinking chocolate. Uh, and, and, you know, and that was the first time I had an opportunity to really experience all of the amazing things you get from, uh, from the cocoa tree. What does a pulp taste like? Uh, you know, it's, it's really funny. The pulp is, uh, so cacao is a tropical fruit, you know, and the seeds inside it are, are what we use to make chocolate. Um, but the pulp itself is tastes like a tropical fruit. And so I think it's very reminiscent of lychee. Um, yeah. And, um, but you know, so, but it's very, it's, it's very sweet, not surprisingly because that sugar is what fuels the, um, uh, the fermentation process in the cocoa beans. Um, so it's very sweet, uh, and it's incredibly refreshing when you're in the middle of a hot and steamy jungle somewhere in the tropics to crack open a cocoa pod and have that sweet pulp is, is, is really awesome. Um, it's actually, uh, one of the things we do is we uh, import frozen, that pulp that's been sadly pasteurized because it has to be to bring it in the United States, um, and frozen uh, that we make smoothies in our cafe out of it so that people get a chance to sort of experience what that pulp tastes like. <laughs> You know, I've never, I've never been that far in your shop. I just buy the <laughs> chocolate and never, I had no idea. Otherwise, I would have, I would have bought that. You know, you, you, you mentioned earlier about geeking out on chocolate. And for us, you know, uh, serving pulp smoothies is, is part of what it is to really 
kind of uh, to, to give people an experience not just of chocolate but of of sort of everything to do with cacao you know so now let's say that you're in Belize and you're you're standing in front of these trees what are the next steps that you engage with the farmer with well yeah so um so so essentially when the pods are harvested um there's a couple things that are important so so cacao is uh should be a, a relatively expensive product to purchase um and you know the commodity price i think doesn't do it justice and you'll hear this from a lot of people that the commodity f- price for cacao is is much lower i believe uh, fair trade even last year said it needs to be something like two or three times if I remember correctly uh, what it should be in order for it to really support the livelihood of, of cacao farmers um, and and the reason for this is it's all harvested by hand um, so there there aren't mechanized harvesters for cacao um, part of the reason for this is the fruit itself unlike um, some fruits which have a I'm not a botanist, so I always forget these words, but the the word for the, the sort of natural break point um, in the stem, so when it's ripe, the fruit will fall from the tree. Um, cacao doesn't actually have this, and so it means you have to go, even perfectly ripe pods, you have to go and, and cut off the tree, typically with a machete. Um, and, uh, you know, and so it's, it's a lot of manual work. I, I've um, some, some of the partners we work with, um, and the, and the farmers and producers, um, have let me spend time in their fields, uh, um, fumbling around cutting <laughs> pods off the trees. It's, it's, you can always tell how everyone gets a kick out of it. Cause they're like, Oh, that guy is so slow <laughs> um, <laughs> in trying to get the pods of the tree. But anyway, so, um, so everything's harvested by hand and then the pods have a, have a thick husk to, um, essentially, it's evolved to to stop animals from um, from uh, getting into the the pulp, um, or at least getting in too too quickly. Um, uh, and um, and so the 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 husk of the pot itself is quite thick, and so again, you have to crack that open, typically either with a machete or with sort of something heavy, which could be another pod. Um, to crack it open. Uh, and so this becomes a, a, a very manual intensive process, but the end result is what people refer to as wet beans, um, which are cocoa beans. Uh, so r- raw, truly raw cocoa beans that are covered in pulp. Um, mm-hmm. and then these beans are what you, uh, ferment. Um, and so, you know, the people we work with typically are fermenting them in, uh, in wooden boxes, although, uh, Vicente Norero out of Ecuador ferments them in uh, in sacks using his very specialized process. Um, but uh, but yeah, and so what you, you know what you do is you take those beans and and you put them in a fermentation box. Um, and I'll I'll stop there before going further <laughs> to see to see what you think might be interesting. Yeah. So in that, let's say for instance, beans weren't fermented at all. Yeah. What would the end result be? Like, what's the flavor difference? Yeah, um, so the fermentation really um, uh, sort of reduces the bitterness um, and develops the flavor. And so what's basically happening in the fermentation process is the sugar is being uh, eaten by yeast, and that yeast is producing um, alcohol and heat. The alcohol and heat are an environment um, for bacteria to thrive, and the bacteria um, in conjunction with oxygen will, will produce acetic acid. Uh, the acetic acid soaks inside the bean, and that acetic acid is what really breaks down 
um, the you know the the compounds inside the bean to create these flavor precursors. And so, unfermented beans that have been it's typically the term people use is washed beans, which means that instead of fermenting them, they've been washed and dried. Um, and you know the difference immediately. It's it's a visible difference both on the outside and on the inside. Um, and uh, wash beans tend to be very bitter, um, as well as the flavors aren't nearly as complex, right? Um, you know, and so 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 the acetic acid does a really good job of of um, sort of bringing out the complexity. I, you know, we talk about this all the time. Like all of our all of my most favorite complex foods are fermented, you know, wine and um, <laughs> beer and all these things, you know, fermentation does, you know, brings out some, some interesting flavors. And so unfermented beans, you know, are, uh, are, are quite bitter. Um, and also just, just, just not as interesting. I find. Hmm. How, how do you know the proper amount of days? Is that a collaboration between you and the farmer? Um, sort of, I, you know, the reality is the, the, the farmers and producers know a lot about this stuff. Uh, I, I've been to a lot of different um, cocoa farms. I've been to, I need to count exactly, but probably been to over 50. Um, uh, well, I mean, last year alone, I went to 25 cocoa farms in um, spread across about 12 countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I've, I've been to a lot of places. And so what I have is I have a sort of a wide breadth of, a relatively shallow knowledge as opposed to somebody who spends every single day fermenting and drying. And, and the reality is every single set of beans needs a different treatment. And so, um, and so the, the people who are sort of closest to the beans, the, the fermenters and farmers are the people who tend to have the best, uh, the best idea of how to do it. The, the thing, the, the thing that really is the collaboration is, helping to figure out what is the flavor that we want to bring out. And so um, one of the places we work with, uh, Reserva Zorzal in the Dominican Republic, um, this year we're going to be working with them where they're going to ferment beans four different ways and send us samples of those four different ferments that we're going to make into chocolate and then bring back down to the Dominican Republic where the, the you know, the the producers so the farmers uh the, the people running zorzal some folks from dandelion and in fact we're going to be bringing customers so customers we bring on that trip we'll all be able to taste the different uh the different samples together to decide which ferment we really enjoy and so the, you know the, the collaboration really comes in between uh us talking about what we think will be uh good and interesting flavor and the producers figuring out how to arrive at those flavors. So for this collaboration, do you have collaboration between other companies in the industry? Or is it pretty siloed? Like, for example, another, I hate to say, like competitor, I'm sure might use the same farm. Do you guys talk to each other often? Or is it just mainly that the company talks to the farmer and there's no communication between um, the other companies? So, uh, so uh, you know, we have, uh, I would say, an enormous amount of contact and collaboration with other chocolate makers. Um, you know, the the Liberian beans that um, that we use to um, uh, at one point when um, we uh, in working with Sheik from Liberation Cocoa, um, those were introduced to us from Dylan from Manoa Chocolate out in Hawaii. Um, you know, he found some really interesting beans and said, Hey, Greg, you know, I, I think these are really cool. You know, do you want to, do you want to bring a container in together? 
Um, last year, we got some beans from Peru, uh, um, Piotr Blanco um, um, from Norandino, uh, and um, French Broad out in Asheville, North Carolina, where the people who um, have a great relationship with Norandino and said, hey, we're bringing a container to in, you know, do you guys want to try out some of the some of the things Norandino does? Um, uh, in um, the Resort Resort all that I was just mentioning, the Dominican Republic just last year, I went out there with uh, with Nate from Rock and Chocolate, um, Livingston from Rock and Chocolate, and uh, um, and Ryan from Parliament Chocolate down in uh, Redlands, California. So um, you know, and and we all traveled together um, in, uh, in the Dominican Republic to, you know, um, and, and the main, the main reason we collaborate, chocolate makers collaborate is we're all doing something different, you know, even given exactly the same beans, uh, literally exactly the same beans, same lot of beans. Um, uh, what we do in our processing will bring out different flavors. And, you know, we all have a different approach uh, of what we do and how we do it. Um, last year at the Northwest chocolate festival, um, Nate uh, from Rucka actually organized a really, um, really interesting talk where there were six of us who each used Maya Mountain beans, the beans from Belize that you refer to. Uh, six of us used Maya Mountain beans and each talked about our process and how we arrived at different flavors. And so, you know, Dick Taylor, Fruition, uh, Rucka, Dandelion, Charm School, uh, and Videri, you know, the, the six of us I'll, um, I'll use those beans, um, but I'll have very different tasting chocolate. So I, I don't think we, we don't think of it as a competition situation. We think of it as a, you know, oh, someone's going to do something interesting with these beans. Um, you know, there have been times that we've purchased beans because we had tried a sample and didn't love them. And then we tried somebody else's bar made out of those, made out of the same beans and uh, said, hey, actually, this is really interesting. Um, let's go and talk to these guys and, and figure out how we can work together. Because if somebody got some interesting flavor out, it means there's interesting flavor in there. And, you know, then it's a challenge to us to figure out how to, um, how to do it. Um, the, the big challenge, honestly, is when you get a sample of beans, um, typically you, we, we get a two kilogram sample. We, uh, we roast them at our sort of standard evaluation roast profile. Um, then, you know, we'll, we'll crack a window of them, make a small one kilo batch of chocolate. So we taste chocolate, not just, um, ground up cocoa beans. Um, but we'll taste a one, one kilo, we'll make a one kilogram sample of chocolate, but you know, it's like every bean's different. And so some of them, you know, need to be roasted longer at a lower temperature. Some of them, you know, shorter at a high temperature, et cetera. So it, it's really not about tasting the chocolate and seeing if it tastes amazing. It's about tasting the chocolate and making a guess if you could make good chocolate out of those beans. Um, you know, so it's like, are there off flavors? Do you taste mold? Right. If you taste mold, you're probably not going to be able to get a good flavor out of the beans. But, it, you know, it's like, well, there's some astringency, but is this so much astringency that I, we're not going to be able to figure out a way to work around it, you know, in either roasting or conching? Um, you know, it, it's those sort of things to figure out if the beans have potential, but sometimes are wrong. You know, sometimes we don't think that there's potential there and there isn't. Sometimes we do think there's potential. And then what we find out is, okay, it tastes pretty much like the sample tasted. And sometimes that's fine, you know. So, so when you get a batch of beans, like how many harvests are there in a year that you would get your like mass um, amounts? 
Well, um, okay, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, and I love that you're asking this kind of stuff because it's sort of, as a sorcerer, this is the stuff I geek out over. But I think mo- most people are sort of like, oh, you get cocoa beans. It's like, ah, oh, but there's so much complexity, you know. Um, so uh, so most, most of the time, it, well, it depends on the size of the farm, I should say. Um, so Bertil Atkinson, um, who produces beans in... Uh, in Madagascar, and frankly, I think almost everyone would agree they're some of the best cocoa beans in the world. Um, he, uh, um, y- you'll see Madagascar. A lot of people make Madagascar chocolate bars in the craft chocolate industry, and almost all of them are using Bertil's beans. Um, they they'll use different words and different names to identify them, but they're almost all using his beans. Um, but because his farm is big enough, he does a couple hundred tons a year. Um, because his farm is big enough, what that means is he'll have sort of um, multiple containers coming out. A container is 12 and a half metric tons, and it's a unit of measurement we use because that's typically what you ship beans in. And so, so he, and so, you know, when we get beans from him, we always get the end of the April harvest, which is, you know, it means there's as much consistency year to year as possible. Um, but uh, for smaller producers, they tend to, you know, and when I say smaller producers, people who produce tens of tons rather than hundreds of tons, um, m- most people in the industry would say hundreds of tons is still a tiny producer. And a, a really big producer of cacao, you know, on a country scale, you know, you're producing, you're, you're definitely producing thousands or tens of thousands of tons. And when I say producer, I don't necessarily mean a farmer. Most cacao is actually grown by various by people with small amounts of land, but then uh, you you have people who will aggregate these beans together for shipments, and those those end up being large quantities. Anyway, sorry, I digress. Um, but uh, but um, so that so so for the people that do tens of tons, they'll usually do two harvests a year. Um, you know, um, there'll be sort of a, a a major crop and then a bumper crop that they do. Um, and ideally we'll get all of the beans in one year from one harvest. Um, but that's not always practical. You know, a lot of times, you know, they have demands, um, that they're trying to work with from a variety of different chocolate makers who all want as many beans as possible, as often as possible, you know? And so like our goal is not to, you know, demand what we want, but rather work with them to figure out what's most feasible for them and their business and us and our business. And then we can, you know, mutually figure out how to, how to make it work. Has there ever been a shortage of beans? Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, I actually, uh, last year was a great example. Um, so it was an El Nino year last year, which I think a lot of people would think, Oh, lots of rain. That's, that's good for a crop. Um, but the reality is, uh, specifically Ecuador, um, it, uh, the the two primary diseases, monelia and um, witch's broom, are both are, are both fungal based diseases. And so, when there's a lot of rain, it means and what, there's not only a lot of rain, but a lot of consistent rain. So it's always kind of damp. Um, you know, you can imagine fungal diseases take off like crazy. Um, and so, uh, so the um, the uh, Camino Verde who we we work with in um, Ecuador to get our beans from. 
they had a they just had a really rough year of spending you know a significant portion of their time fighting disease rather than harvesting cocoa beans because you can't just let the disease go because it'll it'll just sort of take over your whole farm um so you have to work on fighting it um we actually visited last year and you know it was it was actually it happened to be like the one dry week we visited but we were able to see the impact the disease had on the farm and um and it, this does you know when when you say cacao diseases it doesn't mean they have to cut down their trees you know they they can be they can be managed with um uh with taking off diseased pods and you know s- sometimes depending on the disease you'll need to prune your tree um but you know y- you don't have to cut your trees down but that being said, uh, it takes away from time that you need to to be harvesting. Um, the other thing heavy rainfall does is it washes. It it can be heavy enough to wash the flowers themselves off the tree, um, because the flowers are very delicate. And if those get washed off the tree, then six months later, so it takes six months to go from a flower to you know fully ripe pod. Six months later, you don't have a lot of cacao because you know. You didn't. You had a lower percentage of. You had a lower number of flowers, and then you take the percentage of flowers that get pollinated anyway, um, and you, you end up with just fewer pods. And so, um, last year we had we had a big challenge in terms of scarcity of Camino Verde. Um, a lot of the people who, who uh, work with Vicente had the same problem. Um, and again, this is not in no way uh, you know something Vicente did wrong. You know he was doing everything right, but. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, nature doesn't cooperate with what we, you know, people want to do as farmers. Do you ever have challenges about the reject rate? Like, do some batches are higher than usual? Or how yeah, do you deal ab- with that? Absolutely. Um, uh, so, um, you know, our, our reject rate runs anywhere from 5-ish percent to 20-ish percent. Um, and the 20 percent, so... So I, I guess there's there's two things. One is if you're rejecting rocks, if the thing you're trying to pull out is rocks, I, you laugh. Um, we have this next time you're in our, our factory, I'll show you. Um, and if, if if any of the listeners are interested, they can come by the factory and we'll happily show them as well. We have like a, a display case of all the various things that we've found in cocoa beans, ranging from corn, which is understandable, to marbles, which are... I'm assuming there's a sad child who lost his marble <laughs> and it ended up in a bag of beans halfway across the world. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, but th- there are also rocks. Um, the big challenge is rocks, A, don't taste very good, um, and B, are really hard on equipment. Um, and so we try as much as possible to remove all rocks. Um, uh, but then there's also things like cracked beans you know, if a bean's cracked, it's not going to roast quite the same way. So we try to remove all cracked beans. It's sometimes impractical to try to remove every single cracked bean because, you know, there's only so much time you can spend doing it. Um, we currently spend somewhere around three hours when we do it by hand. It's around three hours per bag to sort through all the beans in one bag of cocoa beans. How do you think the very large players like Nestle are dealing with this? It sounds like a very labor-intensive process? I, I, so I can't speak for everyone, but I feel relatively confident to say most of the large players don't sort through their cocoa beans. Mm. Um, so you, you'll have what's called a de-stoner um, or a gravity separator. Uh, and what that'll do is, 
I, I, I love explaining things like a destoner will remove rocks. Um, <laughs> uh, but but so the destoner does indeed move rocks. The gravity separator actually what it's doing is it's is it's separating based on density. And so rocks are, clearly are higher density in um and then things like uh flats as we call them, which are um cocoa beans that were never um uh that that don't have any nib inside of them, uh um are, are lower density and so they'll go to one side and so you take all sort of the good beans in the middle that aren't super low density and you remove the rocks that are super high density and you t- take everything in the middle but that does mean you, you are working with cracked beans etc i think some people we, we've had a number of chocolate makers look in our bin of beans that we reject and say you guys are crazy you could you can make chocolate out of those beans um but you know we've we've done blind taste tests between um, chocolate made out of everything that comes from a bag, without the rocks and marbles, of course, um, but uh, everything that comes in a bag, and then what we've you know sorted out, and our taste tests consistently show people think it tastes better if you remove cracked beans and you know all that kind of stuff. Now, th- there's also a scale there. You know, there's some there's a difference between three hours per bag and one hour per bag and sorting and then not sorting at all. Um, and so those are some of the, the, um, you know, so those are some of the questions we struggle with is like, okay, we know there's a difference in flavor, but you know, how much is too much? Like if we spent 12 hours sorting per bag, clearly that seems insane. Um, you know, if you spend more in labor and sorting through the cocoa beans and the cocoa beans cost you, it probably, you, you know, it's, uh, it's probably not great. But, you know, this is where the optical sorter is actually an interesting, we really do geek out on chocolate, right? I mean, like, there's, there's all this kind of cool stuff you can do. But so one of the things the optical sorter really does allow is for us to sort of tweak the profile in the optical sorter and figure out, you know, sort of how much we can really reject. With the optical sorter, it's not a question of time. It's a question of reject rate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, are we starting to reject 10, 15% of beans that we usually used to only reject 5%. So we're getting great flavor, but now we're rejecting more beans, which m- makes, in essence, the beans more expensive. Is it challenging that once you go through your sample and then you scale up to your bigger production, is it a much different process to get that consistency? Um. Yeah. So, you know, we have, uh, so, so Minda is our flavor manager and she does an awesome job of working through the small batches to, um, to do all of our sort of flavor and taste tests. Um, but then we have a whole production team who are the people uh, um, who have to make these big batches of chocolate and try to make them consistently every single time. And that is a gruesomely hard job because when you're working with an agricultural product, like the beans aren't the same every time. So what you're trying to do is get consistency. And so we're not shooting for exactly the same flavor in every single batch what we're trying to um someone described it once i think it was i think it was dan o'doherty out of hawaii um who's this agronomist fermentation expert um who who said you know it's like wine you're you're looking for a chardonnay should always taste like a chardonnay it's going to have different notes in it and you know you're going to have some slightly different um hints of you know uh you know uh red fruit and is that red fruit um, you know, or hints of berry and is that berry strawberry or is it raspberry 
you know, um, is the question, but it should always taste like a Chardonnay. And, and, um, we try to do the same thing with our chocolate where every batch, you know, if it's a Montuano, it should taste like a Montuano. There might be slightly different notes to it, but it should taste like Montuano. Um, and, uh, and so that's what our chocolate makers essentially spend all of their time doing is, is, you know, working with the, the beans, um, to turn them into chocolate, but trying to do it in a way that we get pretty high consistency in the flavor. And it is, it re it's really in incredibly hard, especially because of the variability of the, the beans that are going in in the first place, but also just because of the variability of, you know, the environment and the equipment and all these things that, uh, that make it a challenge to try to make a consistent product. I know it sounds like your days are really different, but if you're to pick one of your more typical days, what might you be doing? Um, honestly, on my more typical days, uh, I'm I, I'm spending a fair amount of time um, checking in with the with you know with the various people throughout the factory. Um, talk to uh, um, a couple of the producers, you know. So we we're currently working with about ten different origins um, wow. in terms of cacao, which is which is a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I heard you were like, wow. Yeah, and it feels like a lot to us too. Um, but, you know, it's like, I, I think what we tend to do is we'll, we'll buy like uh, um, three tons is the sort of sample size, is the size of like, you know, the first buy we'll do from someone to see if we feel like we can really work with these beans consistently and, you know, um, and that sort of thing. Um, but we really want to partner with people and that takes a lot of time. And so that means like, you know, uh, working with them to, to help figure out how we can be the best partners to them that we can be, um, figuring out what they need, uh, you know, working with them to help them understand what, what it is we need and what we want. Um, typically I'll, you know, we actually get contacted by a lot of new chocolate makers. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and I spend a fair amount of time talking to, uh, whether it's experienced chocolate makers or new chocolate makers, um, to, you know, a lot of times it's just someone's like, Hey, you know, I don't have any money, but I need a winner. What do I do? Um, or, Hey, I tried your bar and I thought those beans were really tasty. Where can I get those? Um, you know, uh, those kind of things. And so, uh, you know, my days, I do spend a fair amount of time talking to other chocolate makers. Um, and then, you know, on a really good day, uh, I'll, um, I'll have some time to, you know, to do a, a taste test and, you know, some, some samples of chocolate we're working with. Um, uh, a lot of times I'm also um, helping out, at least, you know, trying to understand um, the machine and process. So the production team are the people who understand it the best. But, you know, then a lot of times we talk about sort of what we're doing in practice versus what we want to be doing in theory and, and those sort of things. Speaking of other producers, um, the Mass Brothers has been in the news a lot lately. Has that affected your business in any way, or is that just a story that's on the other side of the coast? Well, you know, I, I think whenever there is, um, whenever there's a, a sort of emerging industry, the way craft chocolate is, you know, when craft beer was emerging, every time that there's a a story, whatever the story is about craft chocolate makers, I, I think it always ends up you know, um, having, it, it ends up creating conversation. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it certainly created conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think the end result of most, most stories about craft chocolate is more people asking us for more information. Which is <laughs> um, good. 
Yeah, exactly. But my, my feeling is that's a good thing. We, we like information. You know, we like sharing information. You mentioned our blog and, you know, honestly, on our blog, uh, I, 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 it would have been great if part of my day were writing another blog article. But unfortunately, I don't often find the time <laughs> to do it. But, like, there's a lot of information out there. And I think, you know, I, we want as many people as possible to have as much information as possible because that's what's going to grow the craft chocolate market, right? The more information people have about how to make chocolate and where to get beans and the more information consumers have about what all these words mean, um, <laughs> to, to be perfectly frank, there's a lot of jargon um, as well as sort of, you know, who, who's doing what. I, I think, you know, it, it grows the market and so... There seems to be a lot of how to say methodology and and you said machine learning, so I'm just thinking thinking of computer science. Does that come from you think the culture of your founders? Because uh, I was reading that they were they were in the tech industry and they were bought out. Does that permeate through the culture of Deadline, kind of making things in terms of like uh, based on data and more objective? I, okay, you can you could. You can make an argument of which came first, the chicken or the egg. Did Todd and Cam get into the tech industry because they're very rational and logical and approach things that way? Or did the tech industry instill that in them? But either way, Todd, Cam, and I all came from the tech industry. Um, and, you know, so things like um, trying to, try, yeah, you know, doing experiments, um, you know, people do A-B testing in the tech world. Um, our equivalent is, you know, blind taste tests. Um, but really trying to, trying to get unbiased viewpoints on things, um, to, to figure out the best way to approach something absolutely is something, um, as well as just taking, you know, in, in one of the things you often do when you're working in software is you, you treat parts of your system as a black box, you, you know, as in, you know, inputs go in, outputs come out. And you don't actually under, need to understand what goes on inside that black box. All you have to understand is the the relationship between inputs and outputs. And I think to some degree, you know, um, in terms of, you know, roasting, do we understand roasting perfectly? No. Do we, but instead what we do is we do lots and lots of experiments, even with a, a single lot of beans, we'll do 15, 20, 25 different roasts to understand exactly the, the roast that gives us the flavor we want. And so it not in, so instead of understanding the thermodynamics of what's going on inside the roaster, what we understand is when we roast beans this way, this is the flavor end result that we get. Um, and so instead of necessarily trying to understand the, the roaster, what we want to make sure is the, the equipment works consistently and if it works consistently, then all we need to figure out is experimentally what is the end result we want to get. And these kind of things are, are things that are, are really kind of instilled and driven into you when you're an engineer. In about five to ten years, what does the Deadline team hope to uh, achieve or what are goals they're aiming for? Well, I, I mean, we're, we're honestly super, super excited that, you know, in, uh, oh, I guess it's February, so, you know, later this month, we're looking to open our first factory in um, Tokyo. Uh, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. That's <laughs> cool is exactly how I feel about it. I'm really excited about that, um, you know, and it's going to be a factory cafe akin to, to what we have on Valencia Street. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, like, in five to ten years, what, what, what I'm really hoping is that, Craft chocolate 
has gone the way of craft beer. And so there are chocolate makers in every city, um, you know, and so you go to a city and you find the local chocolate makers um, the same way you would find the, you know, the, the local um, craft brewer that, you know, in, in every new city. Um, and that, that local chocolate maker in some cities might be us, um, you know, and so instead of necessarily feeling like um, our, our end goal is build the biggest factory possible, cranking out as much chocolate as possible. I think we want to preserve both the flavors, but also the experiences. We, you know, um, once we have our new factory open, one of the things I'm personally super excited about is you'll be able to tour our small factory, which has one style of chocolate making using melangers and then one, you know, medium size, although most people in the industry would pr probably say not quite as small, <laughs> um, factory that has a different style using refiners and conches instead of melangers to, to, to make the chocolate. And so I think it's I, like, I would kill to be able to go to one city and see two different styles of chocolate factory and really be able to understand the difference between those two different styles and how you make things. And so rather than necessarily trying to grow really big, I think what we're trying to do is you know, we clearly want to be a profitable, sustainable business, but more importantly, we want to make really great chocolate and we want people to have really great chocolate experiences and feel like, you know, uh, Dandelion is a place they enjoy going to, you know, so we, we, we're, we not surprisingly, um, really enjoy the interaction with our customers and we love going on trips with our customers. Those are on our website as well. Um, I lead all the trips, uh, you know, and so I, I think in five to 10 years, what I hope is we're still making great chocolate. We're just working with more producers. Uh, we're, um, you know, we have more places that people can go to see what we're doing. Um, and, uh, people are enjoying our product even more. I guess we can end the interview with a tough question. Um, what's your favorite bar? Oh, oh, that, oh man, you, you really, because the, the people we work with are going to listen to this and they're like, what do you, what do you say, Greg? Are you going to say it's mine? <laughs> uh, Go, what's your favorite bar at the current time? We just say um, that this could be changing. How about, how, um, so, uh, so I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give, my current favorite bar of the ones we have on the shelf today, um, uh, you know, I have to say recently I've really been digging the Montuano from Venezuela. It's really like it's um, I, like that flavor profile is really speaking to me um, these days. And so, you know, it, I'm not saying it's my favorite, you know, Chuck Bertil, uh, Brian, Sim, Emily, you know, like, uh, like you guys are all making great beans, <laughs> um, you know, uh, um, but, uh, but I think the Montuano today, uh, is, is, um, is probably my favorite. And then in terms of other chocolate makers, I, I, cause when you said my favorite bar, I, I thought you meant like across all bars in the world, which is a really tough question. Right. Um, among other chocolate makers, you know, uh, I, like I have to say every time I get a bar from Maru, um, the chocolate makers out of Vietnam, I'm just impressed. Huh. Those guys make really good, complex, interesting chocolate. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, really, it's really inspiring. And so it's probably these days has been um, uh, one of my favorites. Nice. Well, this has been a really great opportunity. And um, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Really great to talk to you. And 
Um, uh, my name's Greg, and if people come by the factory and they want to ask for Greg, the chocolate sorcerer, um, if I'm not on a trip, I'll, I'll run down the stairs and say hi. And lastly, it's dandelionchocolate.com. Dandelionchocolate, all one word, dot com, the longest domain name ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, typos are expected, uh, but dandelionchocolate.com. And if you want to read about um, our beans, we also do an annual sourcing report where we talk about all the producers we work with, how much we pay for the beans, um, you know, uh, how much we buy. So if people are interested in more of the logistics side of things um, and the cacao side of things, um, you know, check that out. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Music's by georgeshawmusic.com. Also, if you want to see links of all the different chocolate producers Greg dropped throughout this episode, be sure to visit returntosoil.com. Catch you next time.